0: Alright, so this evening if you would, take your Bibles, you don't have to stand, you don't have to stand, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter (coughs) 6, excuse me, to Matthew chapter 6 and I'll be be a little transparent with you, tonight it may not necessarily be preaching in the sense that you're used to um, because this passage tonight has been the subject of some of my own personal musings uh, for the last couple of weeks for uh, a couple of reasons, Pastor had asked me a while back uh, to preach while everyone was away this week, um, and so, so I made attempts to give a formal sermon, some thought, uh, to take a passage, develop it, and, you know, put an idea with it, um, but in the midst of having federal loan regulations crammed into my head at work among also being intrigued by this particular passage that I came across, um, I, I simply spent a lot of time on this and figured that this actually might be a little more helpful, at least it was to me. Now, for some for some background, a couple weeks ago, uh, it was my turn to uh, to teach in junior church, which can always be an adventure. Whenever you're sitting there and trying to teach a group full of children, it's like herding cats. Most of you that are involved in VBS are well aware of that. Um, and 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 actually, the, the, interestingly enough, this was the Sunday immediately after VBS, so we were kind of coming down off the. Off the high road, and so I was—I was not quite as organized as I normally was—and uh, uh, we have a. A curriculum in the back that we go through, for those of you that don't know, we actually have a, a three-year system where we take kids from Genesis through Revelation and we teach them the entirety of the Bible. Uh, they, they, do as, they do very well at breaking down the passages into the, the stories and sections that they deal with to kind of help kids digest it a little easier. And it takes us all in all about three years to get from Genesis to Revelation. We're, in the, we're we just restarted a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Uh, We are in the book of Genesis. However, I could not remember for the life of me where we were, and I couldn't find the book. So I had to think of what in the world was I going to do for a lesson. And that worked out for the better, I think. Children are extremely inquisitive. They love to ask questions. More particularly, they love to ask questions that adults don't think about. And um, I dedicated the lesson time then. I gave them an opportunity to do an open panel discussion, as dangerous as that might be. I let them ask any question about the Bible that they had at all from the last couple of years and wanted and gave them the best answer that I could provide from it. And, and some of them really took advantage of that. It was, it was kind of interesting, actually, how many of them took that quite seriously and asked some pretty good questions. We were in Genesis. So a lot of them asked about creation and and uh, certain elements of, of relationships between people and how that would work. And it was interesting. As, as the time went on, uh, the, they, we kind of expanded beyond what we were immediately focused on. And I got one particular question from a young girl. Uh, and that was from a passage, the, the passage that we're reading tonight. She asked me, uh, why does Jesus say that if we don't forgive others their trespasses, that God won't forgive us? Now, for, for context, we're, we're in Matthew chapter 6. So if you look at me, the, the verse that we're talking about is Matthew chapter 6. verse number 14. Jesus is coming off of the end of the Lord's prayer. He's, he's, he's given the disciples the model prayer. Um, and, and then he says in verse number 14, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, the, the the question itself initially was was to define what trespasses was, but but it kind of expanded into okay, is is God really saying here that he's not going to forgive us if we don't forgive other people? And and I'm, I'll maybe try to engage you a little bit tonight. I'm gonna I'm gonna have another Q and A session. However, this time, you're not asking me the questions, I will probably be asking you the questions, but I'm going to wait here awkwardly until people engage, because that's how serious I am about the questions, that's okay. So, it's going to be a little bit unorthodox, some of you are already looking at me like you're uncomfortable and I haven't even said anything yet, but that's okay, we'll get through it. Um, this passage is trying to teach us something about forgiveness. Obviously, the word forgive is the key word in there, forgiveness, trespasses, um, and is it teaching us something about god's capacity for forgiveness so so who in here true or true or false is this bible giving us a straight face value answer that god will not forgive us if we don't forgive other people true or false false that's right god god forgives god god's part of god's nature is forgiveness he does not make it clear anywhere else. He doesn't indicate anywhere else that his forgiveness of us is, is actually conditional upon our forgiveness of other people. That, that disqualifies all of us immediately. I think we would agree. But, so this isn't teaching us something about God. This is teaching us then something about us, about forgiveness from our perspective, about forgiveness concerning our human nature. So, first question, first major question is, do you believe that people can change raise your hand if you believe that do you believe that people can change I expected that for the most part I expected that let me make it a little more specific do you believe that the worst people or that bad people this is is almost a question as I would phrase it to the kids in the back do you believe that bad people can really change raise your hand any bad people All right. Put your hands down. One more question. Are you sure you believe that? Raise your hand. Are you sure? Absolutely sure? Okay, just wanted to clarify. Just wanted to make sure. All right. Some of you probably think I'm setting you up right now. I kind of am, but don't worry about it. We're all inclined to think, you know, of course. Of course we believe that people can change. The basis of our belief system in Christianity, the basis of Christianity is the idea that we are intrinsically capable or given the opportunity to repent of our sin, to engage in a change of direction to God and submit to him, right? To submit to self, receive salvation, repent, submit. That is, that's the structure. That's the whole basis of what we believe. Everything that we do builds on top of that pre- presupposition, you could say. Forgiveness is offered to everyone so that they can have a restored relationship with their God and creator. And we'll call that forgiveness theory. Um, my wife was a music major at school, and so she sometimes could tout this thing called music theory. Whenever we sing, there's terms and, and mechanics of how music fits together, and it's all gibberish to me. It's like a second language. But it's, it's the rules. It's, it's the general premise of the rules. Music has rules. They have music theory. So forgiveness. Forgiveness has rules. Christianity has rules to forgiveness. We'll call it forgiveness theory, the theory of forgiveness. We've all heard this passage before, and so we know of the necessity of forgiveness and we we logically if i can use the term we logically embrace the idea that people can change because otherwise what we believe wouldn't work without it you then stumble into different doctrines that can be dangerous like calvinism which we'll actually get to later that 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 gives the uh, assertion that people aren't capable of changing And so in order for what we believe to work, we have to fundamentally accept the idea that people, no matter who they are, are in fact capable of changing. We embrace the theory. But when the hammer really hits the nail, do we buy it? I mean, in in the moment where we are confronted with the reality of accepting for ourselves the fact that the worst people that we don't necessarily think that they can sometimes, can we? We see some of the things that people do, whether to us, to others, to people we love, to people we don't know, whether it's a small in scale or large in scale, we can look at, we we generally accept the idea that people can change, but then there's a couple of those outliers where we look at them and say, I I don't know about that one. That's what we have to look at here. It's clear that the statement Jesus is making here in Matthew 6 isn't meant to be taken as a, As a revelation of God's capacity for forgiveness at face value, we already said if God's forgiveness to us was conditional upon our forgiveness to others, we're immediately disqualified. If you do that even once, I'm sure if God is holy and he's perfect, he requires a perfect record and we don't have a perfect record of forgiving people. So we are automatically disqualified from God's forgiveness if that was the case. But therein lies the point that Jesus, I think, is trying to make though. What if it was, what if that was the case? If God approached forgiveness like people did, would anyone really be truly forgiven? And what is it about our relationships with one another and our struggle with forgiveness in the difficult moments that seems to be present in spite of, in spite of the fact that we all collectively agreed that we grasp the, the idea that people have to be able to change for what we believe to work? So, he, so there's, a, there's a contrast going on here. What is it within us that Jesus is drawing attention to that gets the better of us in spite of the fact that we logically know forgiveness is essential. So forgiveness has to be possible for our faith to have a basis in the first place. But there's two components involved in this process, which, as I, as I thought about this passage, about the question that was asked in junior church, and, and what it is exactly that we wrestle with in our human nature, um... There's two components I think that we should identify here that we that tend to meet together as forgiveness is is (coughs) excuse me awkward is dispensed either by God or by ourselves. So I want to hone in and contrast these two elements as we look at forgiveness as Jesus is trying to paint it, and then try to answer whether or not we really do believe that the worst people can truly change. So true or false? True or false? Again, true or false question. God's holiness and perfection demands that the sins done against him are answered for in a proper way. True, true, that's true. So God is a holy and righteous God. God would not be holy or righteous if sin went entirely unpunished. There has to be some sort of standard that is held or else God is not holy so that's an element of his, his character. So there's a word that we can use for what we would call this demand or attribute. The, God, the attribute of God that demands sin be paid for or that the punishment of sin be carried out is one word. It starts with a J. Go ahead and say it if you know it. Justice, very good. I didn't know if people would get that immediately, but justice, we'll call it justice. That is an attribute of God Where he demands that sin is answered for. And and, and that's actually reflected in our own nature. We're made in the image of God, and so we, intrinsically within us, carry a sense of justice. We, We have a sense of right and wrong that we view through our lenses of through which we experience life. Now, the other one, true or false, God must forgive us by his nature when we ask for it. He has to. He has no choice, true or false. True, true in a sense, but but think, think about it this way. Did we do, is there anything on our part that deserves God forg- God's forgiveness? No. So, so if, you're, if you're coming at it from a theological perspective and you're trying to look at it in God's view, does God have to forgive us? You could maybe argue that for God's character to be consistent, but on our part, is there anything that we did in order to merit this forgiveness from God? And the answer is no. So this, God's extension of forgiveness to us, in spite of our lack of merit for forgiveness, there's another word for this attribute that we have a term for. It starts with an M. Go ahead and say it if you know it. I I heard mercy. Mercy is the word that I'm looking for. So the two things that we're really going to try to contrast tonight are justice and mercy. Because these are really the two things that come to a head whenever we're confronted with forgiveness whether that's you know God forgiving us us forgiving other people these are really the two attributes with uh, of God that come into play and they're manifest perfectly and we can look at that but they're also the two attributes that are within us as bearers of the image of God that we have inclinations towards having a desire for justice but it is true that we desire mercy how do we desire mercy though let's let's go on to explain that let's be honest here when we When we're we're the ones in the wrong, when we're the ones in the wrong and we are the ones caught in trespass, as Jesus said, um, when we're approaching God for forgiveness, of which of these two attributes, of justice and mercy, which of these two attributes are we making an appeal to? Which of the two? Mercy. If you're asking God to exact justice upon you, I am concerned. Um, I mean, maybe not concerned, maybe you just genuinely believe that you deserve it, and I, I, won't, I guess I won't judge you for it, but, but nine times out of ten, really, what we're, when, when we're in the position of someone caught in a trespass, if, we are before, if we're standing before God and we're in the wrong and we're asking God for forgiveness, we're appealing to his mercy. We aren't asking God to unleash his judgment upon us without restraint. You'll have to excuse me. A plea for forgiveness is asking God to in some sense stay his hand of justice and extend his hand of mercy. Right? So we are in some sense asking asking we're asking God to extend to us to recognize the capability within us of our desire to change. We are imploring God, say, God, I know that what I did was wrong. My desire is to do better before you and to live for you. I am asking you for forgiveness and to extend to me your mercy and the opportunity to change. If we, if we can look at it that way. We ask this because we, we're sincere in our own, we're sincere in our belief in our own capacity to change, right? I asked the kids this in junior church as I was talking about this. And, and whenever, whenever you're sorry, how many of you say that you're sorry and you don't mean it, like at all? You say that you're sorry, you just don't, you just don't mean it. You're just trying to get out of it. Heath, I I'm disappointed in you. All right, for the, for the most part, for the most part, when you're apologizing, when you're apologizing, when, you, when you're confronted with a wrong or offense that you've done to someone else, nine times out of 10, you mean it, don't you, right? You mean it. You're, you're appealing to someone's attribute of extending mercy to you in the hopes that they recognize your capacity to change. That's what, that's what the exchange is being done here. This is important. Because in asking God, let's say if, we're, if we go back to us standing before God, when we're asking God to extend mercy, what is it that God has to set aside in some ways, either in part or in whole, in terms of its manifestation, in order for us to receive that mercy? What has to be set aside? Justice. And again, again, when it comes to God, you could argue that perfect justice is being carried out. But let's, let's make that a person-to-person interaction. Let's make that a person-to-person interaction. If, if, I, if I insult or, or offend my wife in some way, and I have to, there is something specific that she has in mind to make it up for. I, I forgot something or I broke something, um, and I'm asking her, please forgive me kind of with the implications that I would desire no ramifications and sincerely just an opportunity to do over, I'm asking her to forsake her justice in order to extend to me mercy, in order to extend mercy to me. Our experience of mercy comes at the expense of justice, at least in the sense that the full measure of justice goes unrealized. So let's keep in mind the connection attempting to be made here. As above, so below. As it is with with our interactions with God, the the same relationships can can play out in our relationships with other people. It's funny that when we're put into the position to be the recipient of another's justice, we we are having justice demanded of us. Um, That's when we put the most belief into mercy and the most belief into our own capacity to change, don't we? We believe, we, we believe people can change because we're the ones in that moment that need to change. Thus, we plead for someone else to let go of their demand for justice so that we can receive mercy. And obviously, the opposite can be and typically is also true. When we're in the position of having... <coughs> Excuse me, we'll get through it. When we are in the position of having an offense done to us, and we are in a position where it is within... Our, our, our right, so to speak, to demand justice, that's when we might be the least inclined to put stock into mercy, depending on what it is. We're selfish. I mean, that's the bottom line, we're selfish. That's really the contrast that Jesus is trying to, to paint here. He's saying, okay, if God treated you like you treated each other, would God ever forgive you? The answer is no. Because, because here's, here's, here's how we are. We like, to have our, we like to have our cake and eat it too. Right, we... If, if i were to ask you could you could you have justice and like if you could pick justice and mercy which would you prefer which would you prefer most of you would say both because that's what's easy we, we, we tend to live our lives by the by to, we tend to be inclined to live our lives by the by the motto that i've heard rules for thee and not for me right that's kind of that's kind of the way we play it and that when it, when it comes time to for mercy to be dispensed that mercy needs to become to me but whenever it comes time for, just, for my justice to come, then, then I'm going to need that justice because we're selfish. That's the way we are. And this, I have an illustration for it. This might be an oversimplification, and I've, I've used this to actually illustrate a couple other things. You'll have to forgive me. As I was thinking about this, this dichotomy between justice and mercy, um, I, I had to ask, this is the second major question. So the first major question is, did you believe, do you believe that people can really change? Uh, based on based on justice and mercy. The second question is: Is it possible for justice and mercy to both be completely satisfied? Well, we kind of we kind of looked at it, and the answer is no. Really, in order for justice to be fully carried out, someone doesn't get mercy. Right? And then and then from the perspective of, of a party that's been offended who says, okay, this would, be, this would be the right justice or judgment for the wrong that's been done to me for this person to receive. And if that doesn't happen to that individual, guess who didn't have their sense of justice fulfilled? Me. So so can both be can can both exist in their fullest capacity in the same situation? The answer is no. At least from from this perspective. Now, what I have here is a coin. This is a half dollar. I have no idea where I found it. It was in my drawer. Let's say that the front of this coin represents justice and that the tail side of this coin represents mercy. And I, as someone with the power to either dispense justice or mercy, can I split the coin in half and give the heads to one and give the tails to the other? No. So I have Liam and Emma up here. Liam is Henri. Brother Tim, does he break stuff? Let's say he broke something. He broke something that was very special to Miss Emma up here. So much so that it was, it was irreplaceable. Now, they are standing in front of Almighty Dad. And Almighty Dad has the capacity to dish out justice or mercy. And, and the, the, the situation is put in front of him and and Emma Emma pleads her case that, that the offense done to her in the breaking of this object that was so special intrinsically valuable to her and so special requires that that Liam needs to do what it takes to pay for it. And and Liam perhaps maybe makes the argument that, well, it, it was it was an accident, as said every boy ever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so it was a, it was an accident. I didn't mean to. Right, and then, and then Brother Tim, let's say he's in the position of having to determine, okay, Liam has quite the list. Let's, let's pretend it was expensive. Let's say it was expensive. If, if, if justice is to be carried out, Liam's going to have to mow lawn for the next three years. He's going to have to spend the whole Saturday, every week, for the next three years to pay this off. I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, it's coming at a significant expense to Liam, at least from his perspective right now. And Ms. Emma would receive her justice. The coin would go to Miss Emma. But conversely, let's say he acknowledges, you know, Liam, I know that maybe you didn't mean to do it. And tell you what, you need to be more careful next time. You need to be a lot more responsible. I need you to apologize to Emma, and, and, and we'll call it from there. Liam receives mercy. What does Emma not get? Her justice. At least the justice that she wants. That's that's the nature that we're trying to that that comes to a head every single time, every single time forgiveness is put in front of us. These are the two aspects of our being that come to a head that make it hard for us to accept some of these outcomes sometimes that make forgiveness almost impossible. There are times when our desire for justice is overwhelming. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to get super theological about the question, is it possible for justice and mercy to, to both be completely satisfied? We as people, like I said, we love to have our cake and eat it too. When you're asking for the two which you prefer, you would like both. And it's context specific to where we imagine ourselves in a given moment. From a human perspective, we want mercy when it's convenient for us, and we want justice when it's convenient for us. That's our nature. One always comes at the expense of another. So here's the third major question that I'd really like to talk to you about tonight. If we've, if we've established then that this is what comes to a head, what, what keeps us from, from forgiving other people like we should, and it's that we, we're, we're confronted with, with the fact that sometimes in order to forgive someone or in order to, for someone to receive mercy, that's gonna come at the expense of our justice. That's just the way that it is. And the question that I want to ask you tonight, that really I want to give you, that you could, you could say it's the main idea, it's not in a statement, it's, it's really in the form of a question. And that's, it's the thought I want to leave you with, is how do you respond when in life someone's mercy, someone else's mercy, comes at the expense of your justice, the justice that you get. One of the Bible stories that I was thinking about when, when, I, was, when I was studying for this was really Jonah, honestly. In the book of Jonah, and he makes a good illustrative point of, of these two natures colliding. And, and if we have a couple more minutes, I think we do. Um, if you want to, you can turn to Jonah chapter three. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make the, the brave assumption that a vast majority of us in here are at least familiar with the story of Jonah. So I, I'm not gonna necessarily go and read the text and, and, and all of that. But but the the struggle that we have in the moment with accepting whether or not the worst people can genuinely change. And how exactly is it that we're going to respond when it seems like someone else's mercy is coming at the expense of our justice? And we're in Jonah, and, and where we would be is in Jonah chapter three. And, and to set up the book of Jonah, Jonah, what was Jonah told to do? What, can anyone tell me what Jonah was told to do? We're in junior church mode now. What, what, was, what was Jonah's mission? Yes, buddy. That's right, that's right. Give him a hand. He did a great job. I was the only one. Okay, yeah, that's right. Give him a hand. Okay, let's not make this weird. Okay, very good. Okay, so he was to go to Nineveh. He was to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent because the Lord said that their evil has come, up, their evil has come upon them. Uh, and so you need to go preach repentance to them. Now, did Jonah want to do it? No, no, he did not. He does, the Bible doesn't actually give us specific reasons as to why he didn't. Um, some people would just say that, that Jonah was selfish and that he wasn't compassionate. And that's, that's partly true. But you have to remember that we are people just like Jonah. And, and I don't think that it's improper to maybe use some historical detail to project how maybe I would feel in that situation. So what do we know about Nineveh historically? Well, God's not just telling Jonah, hey, Jonah, go to this city. These people need to repent. And that's that. And Jonah's just saying, "Now, nah, God, not today. The people that live in Nineveh are called the Assyrians. What had happened was, is that when Israel and Judah had sinned, the Babylonians had come in, they carried people away into captivity, and then, and then conversely, the Babylonians in the book of Daniel, they were captured and conquered by, by the Assyrians, or the Persians, I could have that wrong. But currently, Nineveh is an Assyrian city, they're, they're Assyrian, and the Assyrians were not great people, they really weren't. Um, you have to. You have to maybe think of some of the things that were the, some of the images that were in Jonah's mind, as God's telling him, "Okay, Jonah, you need to go preach to these people, so that way I can extend an opportunity to them for to be forgiven." And Jonah's thinking, okay, what are they guilty of? Well, their siege tactics were terrible. They would siege cities for weeks, and they would starve people. After those people were conquered, um, they would conduct mass executions in order to put fear into the hearts of their captives to make sure that even if they were given relative autonomy, that they would still be loyal to the Assyrian king. Then thirdly, they, they, I mean, brutal, some brutal atrocities that, that, they would, that they would be guilty of in terms of... Uh, Whenever they would conduct executions, sometimes those would be in, in particularly brutal ways. They would be beheadings that would be displayed. They would be flayed. They would be hung onto the wall. I won't get necessarily into too much graphic detail, but it's not exactly like they're just, like just kind of your cranky neighbor, right, that you don't really like. It's more than that. I mean, these were, to Jonah, as a people, belonging to a people group that had been conquered by the Assyrians, that is what those people were guilty of doing to his people, you have to understand that. And I'm not necessarily trying to justify Jonah's attitude I'm, as much as I am trying to maybe get us to say, we can, we can maybe sympathize with that a little bit in that God's saying, hey, I want to forgive these people that were absolutely terrible to all of your people. So Jonah, Jonah has some issues with that. So Jonah first attempts to avoid Nineveh entirely. For what reason? Probably because he doesn't want them to repent. He wants God to judge them. It's like, God, they deserve judgment. Why in the world should we extend that opportunity to them? So he runs away and God turns him around, you know. He's, he goes on the ship to Tarshish and then they throw him overboard, the storm. They throw him overboard, he's swallowed by the fish and then spat up onto dry land. Now, what happens in chapter three is that God tells Jonah again. He says, Jonah, I want you to go preach repentance to, to the, the children, to the people in Nineveh. So Jonah... Obviously, from all of the events before, and knowing that he's not going to get away from doing what God asks him to, he complies. He complies. He goes and he preaches to Nineveh, and what do they do? They repent. They repent, right? The king actually calls for everyone to, to put on sackcloth and to, and to mourn. Um, yeah, verse number, verse, number, verse number eight. But let man and beast be covered as sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. And who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. This is the king of Nineveh speaking. In verse number 10 in chapter three, it says, and God saw their works and that they, <coughs> excuse me, that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he said he would do to them and he did it not. Chapter four, verse one. But, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. The struggle that's going on with Jonah right now is is kind of what we've been trying to build up to tonight. Jonah is trying to reconcile the fact that mercy has just been extended to the Ninevites. At whose justice, at whose sense of justice did the mercy of the Ninevites come from? Whose expense? Well, from Jonah's perspective, from his own. In that, in that he's saying, God, these people deserve it. Have you seen what they did? Now, maybe, maybe even to bolster Jonah's side, let's say, have there, been others, have there been other cities or people that God has destroyed without giving them the opportunity to repent, at least in, as far as evidenced in scripture? Has there been anywhere else that, that God didn't give them that option? You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, the children of Midian, you know, they weren't given the opportunity to repent. God's justice said, no, these people are wicked and they need to be destroyed, and so they were. And I'm sure if Jonah was familiar with that, Jonah's thinking, well, God, well, wait a second. Like, the, you, do you see the resemblance here? Like, why, why should these people be given the opportunity to have any mercy? Jonah's really wrestling with that. And, and it's actually a little bit funny. It's actually a little bit funny because after, after it's clear that the people have repented, what does Jonah, Jonah go up and do? It's in chapter 4 it says that he goes and he builds a booth on a hill to watch and see what would happen to the city. He doesn't think that God's going to spare him. Even after, it's, even after God made it clear, if they repent I'm not going to do it. Even after the people made it clear that we're going to repent and pray that the Lord doesn't destroy us. And then Jonah says, okay I'm still, gonna, I'm still curious to see what's going to happen. And that kind of brings us to a third element of how we tend to reconcile what happens when we're confronted with someone else's mercy coming at the expense of our justice. And that's that we want to believe that people don't really mean it. I mean, why else would Jonah be sitting there waiting for the city to be destroyed? Is because he, he has to be hoping in some way that the Ninevites were just blowing smoke and that in the end that God was gonna do exactly what he said and that his justice would be met. Is that, is, would that be not reasonable to conclude? Why else would he do it? And we, the reason I use Jonah is because that, I think, as a whole, can be exactly what we do. Is we go from acknowledging the fact that for salvation, for Christianity to work, people have to have the capacity to change. We have to believe that people can change, even the worst worst people. And then... And then it becomes a little bit more personal. It goes from general to personal where you're confronted with, with someone that has committed an offense against you. And this, is not, this isn't something like, uh, you know, they took your spot at church, right? Like the, they, they've wounded you, right? Like, you, like you're hurt, you're hurting. You're still hurting. You have to see them all the time and you're reminded of what they did. You know, and, and maybe they're, they're certain, there's no, there's no element of, recompensation that they can give you to 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 make up for what they've done like the scars run that deep i'm not i'm not talking about minor offenses i mean you want justice it's personal now and now you're now you're confronted again with the with the with the question of do you really believe that the worst of people can change the logical part of you says yes but the part of you that demands justice says i don't want to believe that I know that that mercy has the ability to be extended, but their mercy comes at the expense of my judgment. So what's the middle ground we tend to find? Is that we tend to choose. We tend to default to thinking that, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe you're forgiven, maybe I'll forgive you, God forgives you, but I don't think you'll change. Because there's something about us that wants them to receive the justice that we demand. And so it goes back to our third question tonight. Really that, maybe not to leave it on a cliffhanger, but, but those are the questions that I have for you tonight. That's maybe the question that, that Jesus is trying to ask here and that, you know, how, is, uh, how you're forgiving other people, what if, what if that was reflected in how God forgave you, right? God, God's forgiveness to you comes at the expense of him receiving the justice that he's due. It does. And if you let that hamper you and your forgiveness, your extension of forgiveness to other people, then, then we, might, we, we might have a problem with some selfishness and pride. How do you respond when in life someone else's mercy comes at the expense of your justice? Do you refuse to believe that people can repent? Or do you just simply not want to believe that God can work in people's lives? Do you, do you secretly hope in the back of your mind that the person who is expressing sincere repentance doesn't mean it, so that way you can watch them suffer the consequences of their actions. I've done it. I mean, I'll be completely honest with you, I've done it. I have, I have, I have sat in a room with people that, that have done wrongs to me, and I've looked at them, and I've said, you know, they've repented, like they, they've, they've told me that they're sorry, but I honestly, I kind of hope they get what's coming to them, and if that means that I'm hoping they, they didn't mean it, I mean, that's a little destructive, isn't it? Have you allowed yourself to buy into that middle ground? Have you tried to convince yourself that you can forgive someone, but without genuinely believing that they have the capacity to change and to serve the Lord again? How do you respond when in life someone else's mercy comes at the expense of your justice? Thankful for your attention tonight. Like I said, those were some of, some of the musings that I've had from the last couple of weeks, really from a question from a child. And, and it's been extremely helpful to me to think about because I have to recognize a lot of aspects in my own life where, where I tend to do that. I, I, I tend to... I tend to embrace, the, embrace the, the logical understanding that, yeah, I need, I need to forgive people, I need to extend forgiveness to people, but then when it becomes personal, when it becomes personal, does my, does my need for justice stand in the way of, of my desire to see mercy extended to those that genuinely want to serve the Lord and do better? And I, I can be the one that gets in the way of that. That attitude can be the one that gets in the way of that. Because, because the Bible does tell people that when you've, when you've offended your brother, before you come make your sacrifices, you go make it right with him. If you refuse to let people come make it right with you because you don't want to believe that they can legitimately change, then you're the one imp- impeding their spiritual progress, not them.